The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. This is Jacob Yasha Schneider, editor of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, welcoming you to the American Thoracic Society's podcast. I would like to introduce our editorial board member, Dr. David Kaufman, the Chief of Critical Care at Bridgeport Hospital, a teaching hospital affiliated with Yale University. His interests include sepsis, acute lung injury, and septic shock. Welcome, Dr. Kaufman. Thanks, Yasha. Today, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Joshua Diamond and Dr. Alan Glanville. We're going to be discussing Dr. Diamond's article, Clinical Risk Factors for Primary Graft Dysfunction After Lung Transplantation, and Dr. Glanville's accompanying editorial, Why Does the Transplanted Lung Sometimes Fail to Work?, both of which appear in the March 1, 2013 edition of the Blue Journal. Dr. Diamond completed his fellowship in pulmonary and critical care medicine in 2011, and since then he has been an instructor in the Division of Pulmonary, Allergy, and Critical Care at the University of Pennsylvania supported by an Institutional Pulmonary Genetics and Genomics Career Development Award. His clinical focus is on advanced lung disease and lung transplantation. His primary research focus is translational studies of the risks, pathogenesis, and outcomes after lung transplantation. He is currently evaluating the role of innate immune activation in the development of post-transplant complications, including primary graft dysfunction and bronchiolitis obliterans syndrome. He has also been an active collaborator evaluating the microbiome of lung transplant recipients. He has focused on integrating data of differential immune activation with expanding knowledge on microbial colonization and infection of the lower respiratory tract. Dr. Granville is a professor who trained in Sydney, the Brompton Hospital in London, and Stanford University in California. He currently works as a specialist in lung transplantation at St. Vincent's Hospital in Sydney, Australia, where he is actively involved with international trials into new immunosuppressive and antiviral agents. He sits on the editorial board of the Blue Journal, the American Journal of Transplantation, and the Journal of Heart and Lung Transplantation. He is president-elect of the International Society for Heart and Lung Transplantation and chairs the European and Australasian Investigators in Lung Transplantation. He has authored over 150 publications, including approaches to monitoring immunosuppressive therapy, treating RSV, CMV, chlamydia, and mycobacteria, and he is the senior author of the International Guidelines for Lung Transplantation and Foundation Director of Outcomes Australia and a Foundation Member of Share Life Australia. Thank you, Dr. Diamond and Dr. Glanville. Dr. Glanville. The work in the March 1, 2013 edition of the Blue Journal highlights primary graft dysfunction in lung transplant recipients. Can you remind the readers of the Blue Journal who may not be very familiar with lung transplantation what primary graft dysfunction is? What are the consequences of PGD? And what is the current state of scientific knowledge about what leads to PGD? Thank you. When we transplant lungs, we take lungs that we think will work from a potential donor having checked that they have satisfactory gas exchange and no known major infection, and usually with a clear X-ray. And sometimes we do other checks of the potential donor, such as a bronchoscopy, to make sure there's no gross aspiration or other problems. So the lungs that we put into potential transplant recipients should work. 
happens in practice is that between the time that the last preoperative checks are made and when the patient comes out of the operation room into the intensive care unit, that sometimes the lungs no longer work. That is, they have infiltrates on chest X-ray and more importantly, the gas exchange deteriorates. And we grade that by looking at the relationship between the measured partial pressure of oxygen and the inspired fraction of oxygen. So if a patient is on 100% oxygen and their measured oxygenation is less than 200 and they have infiltrates, we would say that they have severe or grade three primary graft dysfunction. It just means that the lungs don't work from the moment that they are implanted into the recipient. And there are all grades of this. And you can measure this at time zero when the patient comes back to the ICU at 24 hours, 48 hours and 72 hours. And sometimes it's simply a matter of the lungs being wet or edematous and this may relate to the mode of death of the donor or the amount of fluid resuscitation they've had or other factors. Neurogenic causes may lead to flooding of the lungs if the donor had a major head injury for example. In other cases there may be more serious reasons why the lungs do not work but we don't always know why and that is why this study that Diamond and all have done is so important because it helps us tease out the reasons why lungs may not work in the early post-operative period. Why is it important? Quite simply, lungs that do not work early after an operation such as this, a transplant operation, are associated with a need for supportive therapies and those supportive therapies may mean prolonged intubation and ventilation, it may mean using extraordinary measures such as extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, it almost always means prolonged time in the intensive care unit, prolonged time as an inpatient in the hospital and all of these equate to increased risk of other complications such as line related and catheter related sepsis ventilator associated pneumonia and the like. In addition it adds cost to the procedure. Costs which are immediately determined by length of stay and morbidity and the need for prolonged rehabilitation. Perhaps more importantly is the fact that primary graft dysfunction is one of the major causes of perioperative mortality. If we look at all the patients who do not survive 30 or 60 or 90 days, depending where you make the cut point after lung transplant, primary graft dysfunction is the most common cause of mortality or the most common association of mortality in that early postoperative period. Severe primary graft dysfunction probably affects, depending on the series and depending on the hospital, about 15% of people across the board. But of course, not all of those people succumb, but about one in three patients will. And if we look at a most recently described five point something uh, mortality in the first 30 days after transplant, the major cause is primary graft dysfunction. That is, the patient dies because the lungs didn't work and we couldn't support them. But of course, whenever you damage an organ, you have short-term effects, medium-term effects, and long-term effects. 
And unfortunately, there are significant long-term effects of primary graft dysfunction. If we track the performance of the lung for a period of time at one year, two years and three years after lung transplant, we can grade the outcomes according to the severity of the primary graft dysfunction. Patients whose lung works well from the beginning have the best outcomes. Patients who have severe primary graft dysfunction will have a higher rate of mortality, but also a higher rate of graft dysfunction. Now we now use the term chronic lung allograft dysfunction, which embodies all of the causes of a lung graft that doesn't work. And this will include in particular what some of you may have seen in the literature, the term bronchiolitis obliterans syndrome, which refers to a measured change in the forced expiratory volume in one second that develops a period of time after transplant. So that patients who have severe primary graft dysfunction have a higher rate of bronchiolitis obliterans syndrome. And we now know that BOS, or bronchiolitis obliterans syndrome, is not the only form of chronic lung allograft dysfunction. We see restrictive physiology as well. And primary graft dysfunction, or PGD, is the most is a relevant risk factor for that as well, but that hasn't been as studied as authoritatively as the relationship between PGD and BOS. Dr. Diamond, you and your co-workers chose a broad approach to try to determine what are risk factors for the development of PGD. I was hoping you could tell us briefly about how you constructed your registry, and then how did you identify cases and candidate risk factors? And if you could help us by describing a little bit about the statistical modeling you did to identify the contribution of each possible risk factor. Thank you very much. To answer the first part of the question about how we generated the registry, enrollment of patients in this study actually started back in 2002, which is the initial phases of what has come to be known as the Lung Transplant Outcomes Group, or LTOG cohort. At this point, it now includes 11 centers, 10 of which were included in the study that was published in the Blue Journal. Really, as Dr. Glanville described, we're looking at primary graft dysfunction, or PGD, which is something that develops within the first three days after lung transplantation. So this is really a prospective cohort study that extends over a three-day period. And we utilized PGD as a diagnosis based both on the appearance of chest x-rays that were read by two independent chest x-ray readers, plus the P to F ratio defined as a ratio less than 200 for severe primary graft dysfunction, according to the International Society for Heart and Lung Transplant grading scheme. We selected severe PGD and then further restricted our PGD diagnosis to the PGD that actually is still present two to three days after transplant to try to eliminate some of the other causes for decreased PF ratio and an abnormal chest x-ray, typically increased volume administration during and after the organ transplantation period. In order to determine which risk factors to look for, there's actually a significant amount of existing literature, usually based on single center studies or retrospective cohort studies using registry data, that have identified a wide variety of donor, recipient, and perioperative risk factors. So we included all of these as potential risk factors for primary graft dysfunction in this study. We also included some other hypothesized risk factors that have been based on newer advances in the field that have identified new mechanisms that potentially lead to primary graft dysfunction. 
the modeling scheme that we used was actually conditional logistic regression. Since the study extended over 10 different centers, we used a, a fixed effect model using center as the fixed effect. And then, although this was a prospective study in which we tried to minimize to the best of our abilities the amount of missing data, we still did have some variables that had a significant amount of missing data. And we used multiple imputations to try to account for this missing data. We're happy to say that overall, the amount of missing data that we had in the study was relatively low. We thought that this overall study design had several advantages over previous investigations of risk factors for primary graft dysfunction. One, it was multi-center, looking at a wide variety of locations across the United States. It's actually the largest non-registry study that's ever been performed looking at risk factors for primary graft dysfunction. And the prospective nature of it allowed us to specifically evaluate primary graft dysfunction as an important outcome. Additionally, we were able to enroll a large enough number of patients, ended up being 1,255, so that we could evaluate a broad number of donor recipient and operative risk factors. We actually were able to identify 211 patients in our study who met our rather strict definition of primary graft dysfunction. And furthermore, all patients, all 1,255 patients, were extremely well phenotyped so that we were able to really cast a wide net for potential risk factors for PGD. As a follow-up, Dr. Diamond, I noticed that in your model you wrote, quote, ischemic time was forced into the final multivariable model, end quote. And I wonder what you and your coworkers mean by that and why you felt it was important to do this. And I also wonder if you could comment a little bit about what kind of bias it might introduce to your findings. Certainly. So while we did not identify total ischemic time as a potential risk factor for primary graft dysfunction, in other studies, it has been shown to be associated with the development of PGD. And many investigators and clinicians feel that it plays a significant role in in the development of primary graft dysfunction. So even though it did not end up being a significant risk factor in our study, we felt it was important to include in our overall model. And again, because of the large size of this study, we had a large enough number of cases of PGD that adjusting for another continuous variable, in this case total ischemic time, shouldn't really adversely affect the overall fit of the model or artificially inflate our estimates of any of the standard errors that were associated with that particular outcome. There are a couple of weaknesses, though, in our ability to actually measure total ischemic time. There are really two components to ischemic time, cold and warm. And in our study, we're really unable to differentiate the cold versus the warm ischemic time. Warm ischemic time is really defined as the ischemic time during which organ retrieval is occurring from the time that cross-clamp occurs to the initiation of cold perfusion, while the cold ischemic time extends from that cold perfusion initiation through the implantation of the lung into the recipient and then the reaching of a physiologic temperature afterwards. We're unable to differentiate those two, and there is some literature to support that there is a difference in the total impact of cold versus warm ischemic time. There's also some evidence to support various thresholds after which prolonged ischemic time does become a more significant risk factor. Some studies have demonstrated that a total ischemic time of over 330 minutes is associated with PGD. Again, though, in our study, when we were able to control for a large number of other covariates, the total ischemic time did not end up being associated with PGD. Dr. Glanville, I was hoping that you might, uh, as the author of the editorial that accompanies this work, help us understand what you think are some of the strengths and weaknesses of the study. 
And in particular, I wonder if you could comment on one point, and that is this registry enrolled people since about 2002. So it's quite possible that a lot of secular trends, you know, differences in care that have occurred over the past several years may play a role as confounders. And I wonder if you could help us understand what practice changes have occurred during the time that folks were enrolled in this registry. The long duration of recruitment time is quite a relevant consideration because there are significant changes within institutions and uh, throughout the field over a period of 10 years. However, the majority of patients, about 92% of them, were enrolled between 2005 and 2010. So that does tend to mollify that potential risk. Also, there was an uneven recruitment between centres. Some centres enrolled as few as 14 and some as as many as 347, which means that if there were greater changes in the centres with the larger numbers, then you might see a potential bias. However, we have no way of really assessing that, except that by using transplant centre as a fixed effect, it does tend to reduce any potential bias from that. The other issue that Josh has mentioned is that there were potential risk of imputation bias for missing values. That's probably relevant for reperfusion, where about 46% of cases had missing values, and that comes out as one of the factors which is potentially quite important, that is the FIO2 at the time of reperfusion. However, there are a lot of strengths to this study, and these have been mentioned, but just to reiterate some of them, it's a very exciting springboard to look at other problems as well because you have a large group of centres now who can enrol a very considerable number of patients so that you can avoid the type 1 and type 2 errors that smaller studies will sometimes uh, uh, come up with. In the editorial I mentioned one of the previous studies from Christie et al that came up with slightly different sort of conclusions but of course that was 10 years ago and it was a much smaller study and I think the strength of larger studies such as this is that you do have the ability to have a much better phenotype of the patients who are in the study. And that's a generic problem with some of the larger registries, such as UNOS and the ISHLT, is that data are put into the registry, but we don't have the full picture of uh, some of the details, some of the level of detail that we have in this particular study that will be published in the Blue Journal. So it really sets a blueprint uh, for the way we ought to approach some of these problems. Our large registries probably don't have the level of detail that groups such as this can, can bring to the table. And often it is, the devil is in the detail. And that's why this group has been able to come up with some of the conclusions that are not immediately intuitively obvious. I mean, there are certain things that, that should seem obvious and they also come out of it, but there are a number which aren't as well. And there are a number of other very significant questions that, that I allude to in the editorial as to what degree antibody-mediated rejection may be a relevant factor in graft dysfunction that we see that gets worse during the first week. And that hasn't been prospectively addressed in this particular study, although I would trust that this group has the clout and the ability to uh, look at that in the future. Dr. Diamond, I wonder if your group considered uh, tidal volume of ventilation any part in the early postoperative period as one of the potential risk factors, and if the regression model that you used was able to identify that as a potential contributor to graft dysfunction. 
We did collect a lot of information about the post-transplant management of some of these patients, specifically uh, mode of ventilation, blood gas measurements that were taken in a sequential fashion after transplantation from post-op day zero through post-operative day day three. And those things did include things like tidal volume, tidal volume corrected for ideal body weight. None of those factors were significantly associated with primary graft dysfunction, although I I can say that collecting the post-operative data becomes more and more challenging, first in terms of accuracy and second in terms of completeness, especially when it gets to things like tidal volume because of the multiple changes that are made in ventilator settings, either in response to the development of primary graft dysfunction or to smaller changes in pH, PaO2, or PCO2 that don't reach the level of severe primary graft dysfunction. Additionally, the vast majority of patients who do not develop primary graft dysfunction are actually extubated relatively early in the post-transplant period, either in the operating room or typically on post-op day one or two, and therefore the amount of data that's available on ventilator strategies for those patients is severely limited. I can say that we did try to incorporate some of that information into our models, but most of it did not end up being significant. Additionally, a lot of these patients actually developed PGD and had persistent PGD through day two and three prior to any alterations in their mechanical ventilation strategies. Yeah, I mean, the reason I ask is that uh, PGD sounds so much like ARDS, and as more and more data develop, suggesting that ARDS is iatrogenic and related to how we set the ventilators. I was just interested in that. Dr. Diamond, it seems that your work points the way to uh, some future directions that might eventually lead to improved early outcomes in lung transplantation. In what directions do you intend to take your work, and what are the ways you see lung transplant care improving over the next several years as a result of the kind of research you're doing? I think we're all very excited about work like this. One, the ability to get a large number of transplant centers together to sort of pool resources, pool patient results to really be able to take a a good look at some of the important outcomes that are affecting lung transplant patients. For this particular study, we really did focus on primary graft dysfunction, and we did find some very exciting findings in our study. We demonstrated that donor smoking prior to explantation was a risk factor for primary graft dysfunction, which is both exciting and also controversial given some of the more recent publications demonstrating that organs that are transplanted from previous smokers are associated with increased mortality in recipients. I think this is an area that's really ripe for future research to try to identify what is it about receiving an organ from a previous smoker that increases post-transplant risk in the recipient. We identified at least two different preoperative diagnoses that are associated with PGD, pulmonary arterial hypertension and sarcoidosis. We also identified that pulmonary pressure, irrespective of your pre-existing lung disease, was a risk factor for PGD. We identified that obesity and actually uh, even an overweight body habitus was a risk factor for PGD, which really does have implications into future lung transplant recipient criteria. And then we identified several peritransplant or intraoperative risk factors, large volume blood transfusion, increased reperfusion fraction of inspired oxygen, the use of cardiopulmonary bypass, and actually even transplant type single versus bilateral. 
there are some limitations of the conclusions that we're, we were able to draw based on the amount of information we were able to generate with this study. We were excited about the identification of bypass as a risk factor, but going forward, we really need to try to fine-tune what we mean by bypass, because there are several centers that are included in this study that actually routinely use bypass for all bilateral lung transplants. That's probably different than the use of bypass as an emergent rescue therapy for patients who either develop acute right heart failure or profound hypoxemia during the surgical procedure. So I think this study really identifies some potential risk factors that are either modifiable, that is BMI, looking at donor smoking, but also things that are really ripe for future mechanistic studies. We also identified that PGD, or at least severe PGD as we determined it, was associated with increased 90-day and one-year mortality, which I think just kind of highlights the importance of further research into PGD if we really want to impact both the short and long-term outcomes of these patients. One of the things that we've started to look into is we now have a very large cohort of patients, a large number of well-documented and well-classified risk factors. The next step is trying to figure out whether we can predict who's going to develop PGD prior to organ transplantation. This can help in two different ways. One is just risk stratification prior to transplant, and the other is the sort of holy grail of PGD is to try to develop some therapies that are actually targeted at this disease. If we can identify groups of people who are either at high or low risk prior to transplant, can help to identify cohorts that would be right for future study. Another thing that we're interested in is actually trying to better match donors and recipients based on risk factors. We can identify a group of risk factors in a donor that we might want to avoid in a potential high-risk recipient. This could lead to future advances and improvements in overall outcomes. And finally, the next step really is to try to look at longer-term outcomes, acute rejection and chronic rejection or chronic lung allograft dysfunction. We now have, again, a large number of patients who have been very well characterized and phenotyped. And really, the next step is to identify risk factors for longer-term outcomes, try to identify why is PGD a risk factor for future chronic rejection. Are there things that we can modify over the long term to really try to improve long-term mortality? So I think the, the hardest thing for transplant doctors in general is the unfortunately relative poor outcomes that our transplant recipients have in the long-term average survival of five and a half years, which lags far behind what uh, we see for other solid organ transplant recipients. The goal of research like this is to try to improve both short and long-term uh, mortality for these patients going forward. Today, we discussed Dr. Diamond's article, Clinical Risk Factors for Primary Graft Dysfunction After Lung Transplantation. We discussed how Dr. Diamond and his collaborators in multiple centers of lung transplantation compiled a large registry and tried to discern what clinical factors may put lung transplant recipients at risk for primary graft dysfunction. We also discussed the big picture, that is, why primary graft dysfunction is clinically important both in the short term and in the long term. Thanks for joining us.